Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Sean Kane. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Hold up. If the interviews on this upcoming podcast are anything to go by, Elizabeth Barrett-Browning might want to hold on to that thought, as there might be more than we've bargained for. Later on the show, we'll hear from Marcus DeSortoy, who is counting to infinity. But first... Artist and writer James Bridal has been at the forefront of our understanding of technology and culture for a while now. And the view he's seeing is as exciting as it is gloomy, as he told our technology reporter Alex Hearn when they met here at The Guardian to talk about his book, New Dark Age. If you spend much time on the internet, you've likely seen James Bridle's works before. His autonomous Trap 1 depicts a self-driving car stuck in the middle of a circle created by solid and dashed lines, lines which an AI motorist knows cannot be crossed, even if a human might realise the absurdity of the situation. Before that, his Drone Shadow series saw the artist and writer laying out life-size silhouettes of military drones in sites ranging from Istanbul to Washington, D.C. And before that, he first made his mark coining and curating examples of the new aesthetic, a digital movement without a manifesto that sought to highlight the emergence into the physical world of the visual language of the digital space. Now, in Bridal's first book, New Dark Age, he turns his attention to the more substantive impacts of technology on the modern world, and raises an alarm. New technologies, he warns, do not merely augment our abilities, but actively shape and direct them, for better and for worse. If we do not understand how complex technologies function, how systems of technologies interconnect, and how systems of systems interact, then we are powerless within them. James, thank you for joining us on The Guardian's Books podcast. Thanks very much for having me. We'll turn to the book in a minute, but first let's talk about your work as an artist. Is there a through line from the new aesthetic to the new dark age? Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, because for me, all of these things are totally connected. I've always wanted to be a writer, really, and so ended up in art by accident. And then even the new aesthetic was really just me pointing at weird things that I saw on the internet and sort of trying to bring them all together and and quite often to write about them, you know, as well as Mm -hmm. curating that collection of stuff. I I tried to write about it because writing about stuff is is how I come to an understanding of it. And it's the same with the visual artworks. So the ones that you mentioned, the, the self-driving car or the drone shadows, all of those were you know, attempts to understand these, these technologies myself. They were kind of you know, private thinking processes that I'd that done in public as I tried to work out what was going on with these kind of incredibly charismatic things. And this is much the same process, I think. It feels like over the uh, previous works, there were sort of three main periods. New aesthetic was perhaps an appreciation of the aesthetics of tech, and then with the, with the drone shadows and the works about uh, deportation centres, 
and your uh, photography project of the CCTV cameras around London, moving to tech and its interaction with the state and the power there. And then with the stuff since then and with New Dark Age, you're looking at just the power of tech full stop. Is that um, strong chronology? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty good lineage. In, the, in, in terms of the new aesthetic, I guess it was, it was very much pointing at the surface stuff because it was a frustration with the fact that we didn't seem to have much of a handle on how weird these new technologies were. There was a very specific fascination, which was that um, even though I knew as a child of the internet and someone working in tech and with a background in computer science, like everything was different, everything looked the same. Or worse, everything looked retro. Mm -hmm. This was the thing that really got me. That you know, you'd, you'd walk down the street and everyone's got kind of weird facial hair and dresses like a blacksmith. This was the kind of the height of that kind of like retro hipsterdom and cupcakes and kind of blackboards in coffee shops. And it was like this weird going backwards at a time of, you know, of intensely going forwards. And so I particularly was looking for physical representations to try and work out like a kind of new look that would represent this tech stuff. But of course, as soon as you do that, I mean, the point of that was to have a something on which to hang thinking about technology. I've always thought that, you know, in order to think about it, you need to be able to sketch it out in some way. That's what the drone shadows work was about, to make these kind of invisible objects, or these, these objects which were hard to see, easier to think about by drawing them. But once you've assembled that collection of things, once you've assembled that collection of pictures, it's a way of teaching yourself to see these, these systems, these things that are harder to see. And so the next thing is to actually see beyond their aesthetic impact, um, their kind of deep political and social impact in the world, uh, which has taken me through the last kind of few years and kind of really, yeah, drives into this book. And this book kind of, it's not necessary to know all of that, obviously, but this book does start from that position of starting to get frustrated with that as a process as well. Think that actually maybe it's, um, it's still insufficient to only think of these things as, as solid objects as well or as things mm -hmm. that you can draw that we actually need to still be able to think bigger than that as well. And so... Your essay, which you posted on Medium towards the end of last year, Something is Wrong on the Internet, which went on to become a major part of chapter nine of this book, sparked a huge conversation. What do you think struck people about it? Um, I think it just freaked them out. Um, I, and I think quite reasonably, not least because it had freaked me out as well. You know, I, I started writing that essay as a procrastination from finishing the book and then realised, having written it, how kind of connected it was to the stuff that I was already thinking about. But it followed exactly the same path, not least that I wasn't the person to discover this stuff, just as I wasn't the you know, person to discover the existence of the deportation flights or to start looking at drones. But what I did, I guess, was just dig into a little deeper into where this stuff was coming from and try to talk about you know, why it was existing. And that, that was always something that, again, has stretched back to the new aesthetic of, of saying, like, OK, this, this shiny, weird, pixelated digital stuff on the surface is kind of fascinating and amazing and you can use it to draw people in but then to understand how that stuff is generated where it comes from the kind of pressures that are shaping that the interests that are shaping that that have caused this to exist that's what I find to be endlessly fascinating so to use the YouTube videos as a way of starting to unpack the ways in which a huge amount of the stuff around us is created by autonomous systems by these kind of uh, directionless systems by systems which nobody has set in motion. And that I think that's the bit that really captured people as well, not just the, the terrifying nature of some of this stuff, but the fact that like we have no idea who made it or even kind of really how it came into being. And that's where I think it really hooks in some of the other themes of the book. 
for those who didn't read it or who may have read it and not realised that it was you writing it, can you give us a brief summary of, of what you Yeah, so well, I just found all these deeply weird videos on YouTube. Um, the, the surface, the ones that draw the attention are the ones that are violent. So you have like kind of um, uh, like popular children's cartoons getting killed and tortured and various horrible things happening to them. But then what gets weird is that, um, you know, some of that could be dismissed as trolling almost or as kind of someone deliberately trying to do nasty things to kids. But because the system is so huge, because YouTube has millions, if not billions of viewers, or at least views on all of their videos, because also you can get paid for getting people to watch your videos, people are writing bits of software or creating these videos in order to get advertising revenue. And something happens, something deeply strange in this interface between small children watching loads of videos, YouTube's algorithms trying to provide them with content and people somewhere else trying to make stuff that works for those algorithms. And there's this kind of, this missing bit of human oversight in the middle uh, that produces kind of deeply strange, completely nonsensical outcomes. Uh, and, and so beyond the violent and weird videos are videos that just don't make sense to humans that have this feeling of the kind of deep uncanny of some kind of machine, not intelligence, I mean, even kind of artificial stupidity, but something other breaking through. Your essay and the, the subsequent media reaction prompted some, some changes from YouTube and other platform holders looked into it. What, what did you think about the responses to it? I still think those, those responses like fundamentally misunderstand the problem which is ultimately one of scale and, and, and one, of, one that on that level is somewhat unsolvable, but also misunderstand their own agency. You know, um, the, the fundamental issue is, is that YouTube and, and other systems that run into these kind of issues think that they can kind of engineer themselves out of the problem. Um, that, you know, by, by adding more rules to the system or more defenses to them, they'll sort of be able to mitigate this in some particular way. And I don't think that's possible within, within the system alone, right? Because it operates inside a, a kind of huge political stack, essentially, a kind of different, a much bigger, larger collection of kind of politics and infrastructures. And so it kind of has to account for the rest of society when it's going to do this. So it's not just for Google to fix. The main thing you would fix instantly is better childcare <laughs> so that you know, YouTube isn't functioning as, as a kind of childcare for, for lots of small children. How did that initial fury feed back into how you approached New Dark Age as a whole? Well, it kind of came in at the end of the process, really. I think you know, what, what had happened is that by thinking through some of the themes in the book, I kind of built myself a lens with which to understand this particular problem. And also particularly to understand mostly our inability to, to see and understand how this situation could come about. Because you know, the, the, one of the central themes of the book is this thing which I call computational thinking, which is this belief that the entire world can be treated and viewed as data and summarized as such and then kind of processed. And it's a view that, that really struggles with strange and unexpected outcomes because it doesn't doesn't have doesn't have room for them so yeah in, in looking at this i kind of saw like an absolutely cast iron example of that happening we've got a passage here from the end of that chapter the concurrency chapter which i'd like you to read now all right so this, this covers a few of the things that i've been talking mm -hmm. about in this chapter but um What's common to the Brexit campaign, the US election, and these disturbing depths of YouTube is that despite multiple suspicions, it's ultimately impossible to tell who is doing what or what their motives and intentions are. 
watching endlessly streaming videos, scrolling through walls of status updates and tweets, it's futile to attempt to discern between what's algorithmically generated nonsense or carefully crafted fake news for generating ad dollars, what's paranoid fiction, state action, propaganda or spam, what's deliberate misinformation or well-meaning fact-check. This confusion certainly serves the manipulations of Kremlin spooks and child abusers alike, but it's also broader and deeper than the concerns of any one group. It's how the world actually is. Nobody decided that this is how the world should evolve. Nobody wanted this new dark age, but we built it anyway, and now we're going to have to live in it. So let's cut to the chase. Are we in a new dark age? Are we heading to one? Um, I mean, I obviously think so, because I've written this book, but there's a good conversation to be have about, about what that actually constitutes. And I don't, for me, that's not entirely settled either. I actually use this figure of a new dark age to talk about several different things in the book. I use it to talk about this state of unknowing, of, of like this inability to know who's doing what, which that folk chapter on concurrency that starts with the YouTube stuff focuses on. But I also, for example, use it to talk about our ability to predict the future uh, in very concrete ways. So I talk a lot about um, the history of meteorology and computation, the way in which we, yeah, that's one example of this kind of codification of the world as data so that we can predict it. One of the things that, hap that is happening right now and is kind of scientifically studyable and fascinating is that our ability to predict the future in terms of the weather is starting to fail uh, as a result of, specifically as a result of climate change. We're actually going to be able to see less far into the future, but you actually see this happening uh, across the scientific disciplines, across a whole, um, a whole range of things. And so it's, uh, it's in outlining those problems that the new dark age is saying that actually we need to think of ways to work in the world uh, where this, this prediction and control no longer works. Is it a warning? Is it a call to action? Is it just a, an examination? For me, it's a, it's, a, it's a thinking through these things and a naming of them, which feels really crucial. I think a, a lot of it was a, you know, writing the book came out of a frustration of how actually a lot of this stuff is not well stated, is not simply claimed. You know, we, we point always at the kind of side issues or the smaller issues. In the example of the YouTube stuff, to kind of just point at YouTube and Google and say they're evil, rather than actually talking about the deep systemic structural problems that have created this situation and try to unpick them. I just think our, our thinking on this stuff is so incredibly limited. This is an attempt on my part to, um, to kind of state some of the problems really, really clearly so that we can actually have a, a proper discussion about them. We live in a world where technological optimist is almost an ideology at this point. How do you address critics from that strand of thinking who go that, you know, these, these problems that you've outlined are real, but fundamentally tech is good and great and has had you know, strong positive influences on, well, everything? Um, I, would, I would, well, I would hand them the book in which I detail <laughs> all the many, many ways in which that's not true. Um, but the problem is that I'm not, a, I'm not a technological pessimist per se either. And I don't think, and I think the idea of a technological optimist is meaningless as well. I mean, because the, the argument that I make throughout the book is that technology is, is always, you know, and, and firstly, a, a tool. And the question is not what technology can do, really, but it's who gets to wield that technology, who gets to understand it in particular, who's capable of participating in conversations around it. One of the biggest problems of this thing that we nebulously call technology, which we could call many things, but you know, we'd be bored about it, is that um, discussions of its possibilities and of its effects are limited to very small groups of people. 
And it's weird. It's weird that technology amongst all the things seems to, you know, this, this absolutely most critical part of the contemporary world is regarded as something that's not most people's business. When it absolutely has to be, that it absolutely must be, because everything else at this stage is in part a function of, of technologies, whether that's by technology, I mean, you know, network communications, whether I mean broadcast or distributed media or whatever these things are, they all function according to the technologies that make them possible. So if you're not talking about, about these underlying technological structures that make them possible, you're not having a real conversation, whether it's about financial inequality, whether that's the state of the political system, you need to have a technological understanding of them. And you argue that it's not so much understanding as literacy that, that we need. What, what's the distinction there? Yeah, so in the book, I, I talk about, you know, the, the problem is it's, while we talk about how, how tech infects every part of everyday life, there's also this idea that, okay, well, everyone needs to learn to program, everyone needs to learn to code. And it's like, that's not going to work for us either, right? We can't all be involved on that kind of deep knowledge level. But we need better ways of thinking and talking about it that can, everyone can engage in. I mean, the example I give in the book is, is plumbing, which is that, you know, we all really, really need plumbing. It's fundamental to, to everybody's lives. And yet you shouldn't need to be a plumber to know either when there's something wrong with the system or when like, you know, something needs to be, to have a, a, a fundamental understanding of its importance, of its structural importance. But you need to have an idea of how it works. You need this kind of you know, metaphorical understanding of these systems. And that's, that's what I mean by, um, by a literacy. Because also, you know, once you have that literacy, you can apply it more widely. I, my own background is in computer science, so I have this somewhat more technical understanding of it. But I use that technical understanding to think about other things. You know, so I use it to think about legal systems. I use it to think about systems of citizenship and identity and these kind of questions. Because actually systemic literacy is not limited to computer systems. Computer systems are a really good way of learning to think critically about all kinds of other systems. And that's what I mean. At the beginning of the book, I talk about this thing of asking what it is that technology is, is here to teach us, right? There's slightly dangerous anthropomorphization of technology going on there. But I'm really interested in this question of like, why we built the internet, for example, like what it's for, because that's completely up for grabs, right? Um, no, one, no one built it intentionally. Uh, no one still knows what it's really for. And so it's, it's still all there for us, for us to kind of explore. If we can actually come up with some more interesting, creative answers to that, we might be able to do more and different things with it. And this kind of slightly grim, dark future that I talk about in the book doesn't have to be the future but it certainly involves a lot more of us being part of the discussion about what it's for. Unusually, I think, for, for writing about technology, you spend as much time examining the past as, as the present and potential futures. What can tales of, of early weather forecasting of the first nuclear reactors of, of IBM's ENIAC computer, what can they tell us about today? Yeah, I mean, I find these, these histories to be totally fascinating. And, and it's, I don't think it's a it's weird that, again, that technology has this kind of weird special attitude to this stuff because it's not unusual in other disciplines to try and unpack them by talking about the histories and where they come from. But we don't do this very often with, with technology. So this, this history is starting to be written, I think, more and more. So, for example, it's, it's key to being able to understand one of these technologies, like how weather forecasting works, for example, and also how computational thinking works by looking at how, um, how we develop weather forecasting, which was... You know, the idea of a, primarily of someone called Lewis Fry Richardson, who was a 
a meteorologist right at the beginning of the 20th century, who was the first person to gather enough data of uh, a single day's weather conditions and use that to extrapolate from it through mathematical calculations what the weather might be 24 hours later. And it's an amazing story because Fry Richardson was this absolutely fascinating person who was a Quaker and a pacifist. And so during the First World War, he was a, um, a stretcher bearer on the Western Front. And he did this forecast while kind of taking breaks from, uh, from the trenches. And it took him several months to actually calculate one day's weather forward. But the, but the technique worked. This technique, which has became absolutely key to this kind of computational understanding of the world, which was to break the world down into, into a kind of grid of squares and sample the pressure and the temperature and then do the maths on them to kind of advance by 24 hours. And so it's a, when you understand that, you understand how we can treat the world as something that's kind of model, modelable and computable, but also of the kind of inherent chaos of doing so, right? That the world also never quite matches up to that. And we've managed to get in the last few decades, and there's a whole other story of the kind of computation that got us there, but you know, we've got the weather forecast out to seven to 10 days of reasonable accuracy. And it looks like that's going to shrink again. And so we, it feels like we've passed through this kind of horizon of maximum computational predictability and that we, yeah, we're going to need other ways, other ways to think that. And the question is, therefore, where do we find those other ways of thinking? And one of the answers to that is always to go back into the past, to look at these, the possible other routes that computational thinking could have taken along the way, to look at these stories of how we first started building computers, the decisions that were made then that locked us into this one particular path that possibly could have been, could have been done differently. And so particularly as well to talk about, you know, the military history of computation. If you understand that the development of computers was largely a military operation and therefore one of its highest qualities was secrecy, right? That, that these computers were developed under conditions of wartime secrecy that, to my mind, sort of infected them from the outside, right? That gave them, gave them this kind of shadowy quality, that gave them a this kind of need-to-know quality, that like you don't need to think about what's inside this box. You don't really need to know how. Even once it escaped the military and became public, it belonged to this kind of specialist secret domain of knowledge, which again feels like it sort of tainted it at the source. And we've never managed to quite kind of pull the operations of computation that now run the world out from underneath this kind of veil of secrecy under which they began. Is there an alt history of computing, a, a, a time when the paths could have diverged that, that you'd that you think would have shown more promise, would have ended us in a better situation? Yeah, I mean, well, the, there's two things which I think are super interesting, actually. Um, one of which is the, with the period in the kind of 1950s and 60s, which is the kind of the period of, of cybernetics, and particularly of kind of weird British cybernetics, of people like Stafford Beer, who proposed using kind of biological systems in really interesting ways. You know, he had this whole project to run a factory with a pond using various kind of bacteria and plants inside it. And then he ended up going off and developing the Cybersyn project uh, to attempt to run a country, and that all kind of went horribly wrong. <laughs> um, but, the, but it was definitely an kind of alternative conception of, yeah, of how you could apply computation to the world, particularly the human's role in it, or the rest of the world's role in it, right? It wasn't a, a, an idea of computation that was to replace the world with this data model of itself. The cybernetic view always kind of encompassed the world and included it in that dialogue, which is something I'm, I'm super keen on. And I also just like, you know, to go back to 
to Lewis Fry Richardson, when he created his, his mathematical proposal for how we could calculate the weather, computers didn't exist. Uh, and in fact, he, he writes about computers in his book, but he means people. Because in, in those days, computers were people. They were just people who did the maths. And he proposes what he believes to be this kind of completely unworkable system, but is this totally beautiful vision of a vast weather forecasting hall in which hundreds, if not thousands of people kind of constantly toil under a vast dome which depicts the entire planet and on which are kind of constantly written and rewritten the meteorological conditions. So these people are constantly doing this kind of weather forecasting and these huge teams of mathematicians. And he actually basically describes the various parts of a contemporary computer architecture, but he does it with people. But then he also talks about how this building should be beautiful and how it should be like designed with the ultimate kind of health of the workers in mind and that it should be surrounded by fields because he said he believes that those who um, strive to describe nature should also be uh, able to taste it and enjoy it as well. And it's those kind of ideas I think that feel to be slightly lost when you compare it to the sort of, you know, the description of Amazon warehouses or, or the way in which Uber and, and other kind of uh, zero hours or, or precarious workers have come into being because of these technologies. That, yeah, this wasn't the way it was always, you know, planned or intended or thought to turn out. It does feel strangely reminiscent of, of how Apple's built its headquarters, though. You know, this, this wonderful donut-shaped building with a huge landscaped forest in the middle of it. Yeah, I mean, that's the, there's that Californian ideology that kind of permeates a lot of the kind of Silicon Valley stuff that underpins that and their kind of psychedelic and kind of environmental history. And that's great. Um, but it, um, it doesn't really apply outside those places. You know, it creates a very small privileged elite who are sort of partaking of this and consider themselves to be a kind of priestly elite of those things. And that experience that's av available to them is almost, you know, inversely proportional to the experience that it kind of permits to other people. So, yeah, I mean, these companies may know these histories, but... I, but um, I'm more interested in what the sort of the non-technical make of them. I think a lot of people, when they finish your book, might feel fundamentally uneasy. How how should they respond to that? Good. Um, I think unease is a productive position to place oneself in. I th you know, one of the the things about this is that I, I describe some fairly grim situations, and it's not a it's not a cheery read by many measures. But the thing about the new dark age is that it's it's okay to be in the dark. You know, I quote. Virginia Woolf very early on talking about where she writes in her diary in the 1920s. It feels like we're living among darkness now, but actually the darkness can be an interesting and even productive place to be. The darkness is a good place to think. And as one of the central themes of the book is how we've essentially been blinded by the amount of information available to us, that we actually seem increasingly less capable of thinking, that actually a darkness or an uneasiness is about taking a breath and giving us space to, to think and rethink some of these questions. I have no problem with that unease because actually it's, um, I think it's a necessary moment in which to give some consideration to these issues. That was James Bridle speaking with Alex Hearn. Next up is Marcus de Sorto taking us to infinity and beyond. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Jordan Erica Weber here, host of The Guardian's digital culture podcast, Chips With Everything. At the start of the 20th century, we were worried about bombs dropping from the sky. In the 50s, it was nuclear weapons. Now, according to the National Security Agency, our biggest concern is cyber. When we initially developed the World Wide Web, it was just a way of communicating back and forth. Then people started using it for espionage. And over time, as they did with the airplane, they began to arm it. This week... We talked to journalist and author David Sanger, who recently published a book called The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts or search Chips With Everything on your favourite podcast app. Well, if you think there are a lot of ways that our world is going to hell in a handcart right now, 150 so years ago, it was proven that there could be an infinite number of ways. When a German mathematician called George Cantor published the first proof of the existence of infinity in 1874. Limits are grist to the mill for Marcus de Sautoy, Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University. His mission is to explore, and if possible, explain the unknown. Following hot on the heels of his best-selling book, What We Cannot Know is How to Count to Infinity. Richard Lee interviewed de Sautoy at the Hay Festival earlier this year and began by asking him to take us back to the beginnings and to George Cantor. How did he learn to count to infinity? Well, he did it in the same way that uh, we learned to count, I think, right from the beginning, that um, we have names for numbers, one, two, three, four, that enables us to distinguish between different quantities. Um, But then infinity kind of represents when you haven't got a a name for that. But actually, there are some cultures who run out at three and and then go, well, anything beyond three is lots. And, And so that's their version of infinity. Actually, still today, Aboriginal tribes who have names for one, two, three, but then everything above that is lots. But that doesn't mean that you can't compare whose lots is bigger than another person's lots. And I think uh, this was George Cantor's amazing kind of idea that infinity can be compared, and if you can match them up uh, and uh, they, they exactly match, then they're the same size. But if you try and match it up and there's always something left over... So, for example, if I had four chickens and you had five chickens, they're both lots in this language which doesn't have a name for those, but we could see that your lots is bigger than mine because every time we pair them up, you've got one left over. So George Cantor took this idea of comparing things, even though you may not have names for them, and saw that you could do the same thing with infinity. 
So uh, how does that work then? If you've got an infinite number of chickens, how do you compare them? You have to come up with an algorithm, a, a, a rule, a pattern that helps to match them up. So, for example, if you've got chickens all who have numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 on them, but then along come chickens with just even numbers, you might say, well, well is that infinity half the size of the uh, one with all the numbers? But no, there's a way to logically match them up. So uh, one gets matched with two, two with four, three with six, and the rule is you match uh, chicken N with chicken 2n in the even one and in that way every chicken is paired up with none left over so the idea is to find this idea of an algorithm a way to match them up to show why they they can be perfectly matched except that not all infinities are quite the same no and there are some infinities you think wait that must be way bigger for example if chickens arrive with just fractions on them you'd say well between one and two, there are infinitely many fractions. George Cantor saw there was still a clever way to match them up to show they're the same size. But then you're beginning to think, well, maybe all infinities can be matched up. He then took the tribe which came along with chickens with um, irrational numbers, you know, like pi, square root of two. And here was uh, an infinity which you could show, however hard you tried, there'd always be a chicken left over. That any algorithm that tried to pair these up would always fail to account for all of the irrational numbers. And that's quite hard to show, to show why something doesn't exist, why there isn't a way to pair them up. And that was quite a, a major breakthrough. It shows that this sort of infinity of uh, infinite decimal numbers is a genuinely bigger lots than the counting numbers. This realisation that there are kind of different kinds of infinity and that they can be compared and you can sometimes say, actually, you're not going to be able to match these guys up is one of the most exciting moments in mathematical history, you say. Is, is that because the whole point of infinity is that it can't be grasped? And here he is grasping it. I think that's exactly right. That moment when suddenly you thought something was unknowable and yet now we've actually been able to, to kind of name it, compare it. I think it's almost like the moment, uh, you know, you're living a black and white film. It's like that moment uh, you know, in The Wizard of Oz and suddenly colour appears. You see a distinction between things. No, that's red and that's blue. For us, I think that discovery of different sorts of infinity, we went from a monochromatic world of infinity where something was either finite or infinite and now we see it's, it's multicoloured. That is a, a, incredible exciting moment in the history of mathematics. Yeah, results like that seem to be telling you you can never be sure when a new way of thinking isn't going to come along that's going to give you a handle on a problem that till now seem in, intractable. It's a, it's a message that you seem to find more convincing in the realm of the very big than the very small. Why are you more optimistic about the prospects of learning about the large-scale structure of the universe than instead of the kind of the tiny stuff? Well, actually, this relates to another book I wrote uh, called What We Cannot Know, which is, you know, the challenge of, you know, can matter be divided up into infinitely smaller bits or is there a moment when suddenly you get to a smallest bit? But I think the challenge of... You can do things in your mind mathematically, which then the challenge is, can you realise this physically? So I think the, the, the challenge of just... Although I've just managed to create different sorts of infinity, do those exist in our physical universe? Is there anything infinite in our physical universe? And, and that's a real challenge, and I'm not sure whether we'll ever know that. Um, is the universe infinite? You look out into the night sky, it seems to go on forever, but maybe it kind of loops around and it's wrapped up. But um, if it did go on forever, how could we ever know that? But actually the infinitely small as well. Quantum physics says there's a kind of smallest bit beyond which we cannot divide any further it almost puts a limit on what we can know and we we just don't know what is you know is there more structure in there or is that just it it's sort of a 
are we living in a digital world or is it actually analogue? I was intrigued by the idea there might be some mathematical proof by consistency that the universe is infinite or not. That is, I think, our greatest hope for proving uh, about an infinite universe is using mathematics because mathematics is our most powerful tool to show that something might not run out, that it might go on forever. So I think we could prove the universe is infinite almost by showing that if it was finite, that would lead to a contradiction in our current laws of physics. So, so I think our ma- maths is our best tool to show why things go on forever, even though you may ever, never see them or be able to navigate them. You don't seem to very much like the kind of basic indeterminacy at the, the level of quantum mechanics, that what's going to happen in, in any kind of individual case or, uh, or what, what's going to happen with any individual particle is, is, is in some way just we just can't know it. Is that because it's just not interesting in your opinion? Not that it's not interesting, but this goes against the whole spirit of what I thought science was about, reproducibility of results. So quantum physics says that um, you know, randomness is an inbuilt part of the way the universe must work, that if you run an experiment in the same way, in the setup in the same way, that it can have different answers. That's a real challenge to, I think, a mathematician who's quite a determinist at heart. And, and I wonder whether that is going to be the, the, the final story that we'll have about the way the universe works. At the moment, I think quantum physics is the best story because it works so well and people say maybe it's not actually like that but because it's it's so good at making predictions why do i need what the real story is if actually uh, this story is good enough so i think that we'll see you know einstein completely changed our perspective his generation showed us that the world you know there isn't time is relative space is relative quantum physics shows you there's indeterminacy in the universe but i think that we're probably waiting for a new moment when we'll get a new story uh, and there might be a challenge to this indeterminacy in, in quantum physics and and i i think that might be an unknown which might become more knowable so I, i'm looking forward to these unknown unknowns that are going to appear on the scene and, and completely change our perspective of the world they're the exciting things in science the problems of consciousness and the problems of unprovability that you also deal with uh, they both seem in, intimately bound up with self-reference are there always going to be questions you can't understand from within a system yeah, I think this idea of being stuck within a system is fundamental to a lot of things we cannot know. So consciousness is exactly that. We're trapped inside our own consciousness. I cannot go inside your consciousness to feel what it is like to be you. I can scan you now and see a lot of what correlates with your consciousness when you go into deep stage four sleep. I can see a change in your brain activity. But, you know, the challenge of whether my iPhone is going to become conscious, you know, that might be something that we'll just have to say, well, it's passing all the tests, but whether genuinely it has a sense of self. And I think that idea of being stuck inside a system, it's also about the universe. We have an idea of the multiverse now, many universes, but we're stuck inside ours, so how could we ever pull out and understand there might be another physics somewhere else? Um, And mathematics as well. Weirdly, we've turned mathematics on itself and shown why there are limits of knowledge uh, within the mathematical realm. So Gödel's incompleteness theorem uh, says that there are, you know, with any system of mathematics, there'll be true statements about numbers which you cannot prove are true within that system. We know they're true by working outside the system, so we can pull out and look at it from the outside in, but again, it's this idea stuck inside the system, there are true things inside there which can't be proved true. So, so yeah, I think this idea of being stuck inside a system, self-reference, um, it is really key to a lot of um, unknowables. Is it a question of understanding that system you're stuck inside from a different perspective, perhaps? I mean, Carla Ravelli talks about the idea of the, 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 the night sky rotating around the pole star. It can be explained by understanding your place in the system, that you're standing on a planet that's moving around. Is it a similar kind of move that might be necessary to understand consciousness? It could be, and uh, there's a lot of 
challenges whether consciousness for example will will discover that in many years time it wasn't even a problem that was worth talking about like life uh, the idea we thought there was a elan vital which kind of explained what gave something life and what didn't no now we actually define life as just something which has these properties and we may come to uh, realizing consciousness should be considered in a similar way but i think you know humans have a great ability to go between systems and and we're always going to be stuck inside some system but i, I think that's a very powerful tool for us that we we can go through this hierarchy of knowledge and you know very often you know that's why we need biology chemistry physics mathematics each one has a very good language to talk about the thing it's interested in if i want to understand a flock of birds quantum physics yeah sure it's controlled by a wave equation but that's not the right language to talk about why that those birds are migrating so it's finding the idea of emergent phenomena where new things appear in certain parts of the hierarchy and the right language to talk about that part of the hierarchy um is is what ma- i think humans are very good at indeed something that goes even beyond science I and mean, we can't answer every question with scientific answers is is that where the, the where the arts come in with these unknowable things yes i think that's you know it's wonderful being here at the hay festival um where we you know it's the combination of all of these stories and quite often the artists will make a suggestion which will fire the scientist's imagination to actually come up with that new theory so you know i think uh, Scientists are incredibly imaginative and creative. They're having to go into the unknown, deal with things that might be beyond them, have limits. But I think having an, a creative mind, so uh, you know, the creative arts are incredibly important in creating the best scientists. Um, so that's why you know, being able to have a dialogue here at the Hay Festival between novelists, poets, scientists, mathematicians um, is going to help us all. I guess if the thing that art can do that science can't is to, to go into these zones which are at the moment unknown, does that say something about the kind of art we should be trying to produce, we should be trying to read? I, I don't know. I think it is just uh, we're naturally curious about um, those things we can't understand. So I, I don't think it's about should or shouldn't. Um, it, it, it's about just I think we're, we're naturally drawn to try and explore you know, what gets me up in the morning. It's the things I don't know. What's the, what drives the artists? It's the things they don't understand and they want to try and develop their language to understand their own consciousness. What's a novel about? A novel is a, an exploration of trying to share one consciousness with many other consciousnesses. So, so I think that you know, we're all finding our own different language to, to navigate our place in the universe. Marcus de Sautoy speaking with Richard Lee. What we cannot know is out with Fourth Estate and How to Count to Infinity is out with Quirkus. Next week, we go in search of Chopin's piano with Paul Kilday, and we'll be poring over this year's Man Booker Long List. Here's hoping it is a goodie. Please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and join the discussion on Twitter or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. As always, if you'd prefer to contact us directly, you can email us at bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 